available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 1st of March, 2023. Coming up in the next 90 minutes, a pretty full programme as usual, uh, we'll be at Tamworth Hall on the Radford Road. Uh, we're talking to, or we're hearing from, the thriller writer Peter James uh, about the inspiration behind his new thriller. Uh, we have a sh- another short story from Cynthia Townsend, and we're finding out how to make the perfect pancakes. And we're also hearing from Sarah about a blind football team. All of that later on, but we start with a review of the past week's local news with Pete and Elaine. Outlook News. The Friends of Spencer Park have launched a petition to prove public support for plans to help save a disused Edwardian pavilion in the centre of the park. The pavilion in the Earlston Park is decaying, with the Friends wanting to preserve its appearance while revamping the interior to provide a heritage meeting space, a modern cafe and new toilets. Plans for the pavilion would see it house exhibitions showcasing local heritage articles, photographs and the work of Coventry artists. Plans to refurbish the pavilion have been developed by the Friends of Spencer Park over the past three years. The first stage was ensuring Coventry City Council, which owns the pavilion, had no plans for its future and that they agreed with aims to preserve the building and develop it into a centrepiece and community asset. Funding organisations are being approached, with applications expecting to be submitted within the next few months. As part of the funding applications, the Friends need to show that the public supports the plans for the pavilion, and the petition currently has over 1,300 signatures. Should this happen, the Friends are hoping to start work this autumn and have the building opened by next summer. Coventry's main hospital was full above its capacity for the majority of days this winter due to very high demand for its services. University Hospital Coventry had an average daily occupancy of 105% in December 2022 and January 2023, according to a new report. This is far above the 85% bed occupancy level recommended by membership organisation NHS providers and the 92% in NHS guidance. Soaring COVID and flu cases, a rise in demand for emergency care and prolonged patient stays were blamed for the pressure on beds. The report for last week's Coventry City Council Health and Social Care Scrutiny Board stated... University Hospital has a core bed base of 1,025, but has the ability and capacity to surge into escalation beds at times of pressure. As a result of the above issues, exacerbated by increased COVID and flu admissions, there's been sustained pressure on the bed base within University Hospital during December and January, with the average daily occupancy of 105%. 
In times of greatest pressure, extra patients are placed on wards in the hospital to release space in the emergency department, the report added. Some wards are exempt, such as cancer wards, and the move only takes place in daytime hours, where there is a planned discharge. This helps reduce ambulance handover times and ensures patient safety, the report said. It's only done after extensive consultation with senior leaders. A spokesperson for University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust said, Like trusts around the country, we experienced very high demand for our urgent and emergency services during December and January, combined with increased COVID and flu emissions. The NHS has tried and tested plans in place to manage periods of intense pressure, with our wards and services continually evolving and adapting to support capacity requirements and ensure patient care and safety are always our number one priority. Fruit and vegetable shortages due to extreme weather around the world have affected supermarkets in the UK. But for David Betts, who runs DA Betts Greengrocer, the shortages have meant a thriving store in the heart of Coventry. David, who's 51, from Corley Moor in North Warwickshire, said there have been shortages, but he is getting stuff through growers in the Cotswolds, which means fresh fruit and vegetables at his stall for all of his loyal customers. You have got to remember that if people aren't using the supermarkets, they are coming to us. We are really busy here. People will always use markets. We serve a lot of foreign students and people who have come from abroad to live here. It's in their DNA. They like using markets. The supermarkets have got stuff, but not in the quantities they would like. If they have their way, they would have 99% of the stuff. He added, there are certain things at the moment which are not available at the stall, such as cauliflower, due to the weather conditions. Extreme weather conditions are thought to be the main cause of the shortage of supply, which affects cucumbers and cauliflowers. In continental Europe, they have had poorer crops, which is not enough to meet demand. Unfortunately, we are never going to be the first choice, but if we don't pay the rates, they are going to get it in other places. The situation is to heat stuff is costing a lot more all through Europe. And that's why they don't actually grow so much to start with, said David. Last weekend in the UK, customers were met with empty shelves in supermarkets due to farmers battling with energy costs, inflation and supply chain issues. The production problems started in Morocco, which is one of the largest exporters of tomatoes in the UK, back in January, with the nighttime temperatures affecting tomato ripening. Two Coventry primary schools have been labelled outstanding by inspectors, St Patrick's Catholic Primary School and St Gregory's Catholic Primary School, part of the Romero Catholic Academy, have been identified as outstanding in all categories by the Catholic Schools Inspectorate, CSI. Inspectors awarded both schools, Grade 1, across the board in the latest round of inspections, which took place at the end of 2022. Huge praise was heaped on the schools for their work on religious education and collective worship. St Patrick's Catholic Primary School in Wood End improved on their overall score of good, awarded in the last inspection in 2016. 
claiming maximum scores of one in all nine subcategories. Students received glowing feedback on their religious education, with inspectors claiming that people's, people's view their religious education books as their gift of God. Inspectors also praised St. Patrick's inclusive, welcoming community. They said it was deeply rooted in following the teachings of Jesus Christ, describing participation in prayer and liturgy as exceptionally heartfelt and enthusiastic, with leadership of a very high standard, providing an inspirational witness to the teachings of Jesus. St. Gregory's in Wyken maintained its Grade 1 status, awarded in 2015. It received praise for the school environment, which enhances Catholics' life and mission as pupils learn and grow in a vibrant, faith-filled atmosphere. Megan Scullion, principal at St. Gregory's Catholic Primary School, was identified as an excellent role model for pupils and staff that effectively demonstrates Catholic virtues and values. Ms. Scullion said... We're extremely proud of these results as a lot of hard work has gone into creating the environment that the inspectors have praised. The feedback that we've received is testament to the commitment of staff throughout the school. And it was particularly pleasing to see that our pupils were identified as confident in articulating their viewpoints, especially in religious education lessons, as we're always looking to make learning a dialogue rather than a one-way conversation. Mark McLaughlin Principal at St. Patrick's Catholic Primary School said, Everyone at St. Patrick's School and Parish is absolutely thrilled with the report from the CSI. We couldn't be prouder of the results we've seen across each of the categories. And my sincerest thanks go out to the pupils, staff and governors who contributed to our success. Household bills will soar by an average £85 per year in Coventry in April, following a vote by the City Council. A move to raise council tax by 4.99%, the highest amount possible without a referendum, was backed by the ruling Labour Group and the city's sole Green Councillor at a meeting on the 21st of February. It was not supported by the Conservative opposition and the group failed to get through an amendment to raise council tax by less 1% less a heated debate between both groups centred on whether council reserves could be used to ease the burden on taxpayers this year. The Conservative Shadow Cabinet Minister for Finance, Councillor Tim Sorden, accused the Labour group of adding to people's problems with the tax rise. He said the council has usable reserves of almost £39 million, including £11 million from the government to help Council tackle Covid legacy issues, a £10 general fund used to manage unforeseen risk. We're suggesting using just £1 and a half million pounds of that total to lighten the burden on our taxpayers. The money belongs to the people of the city and by your own admission it's there to be used when times are tough, he added. Give the council taxpayer a bit of a break and cut the bill by just 1%, which you can easily afford. But the council's cabinet minister for finance, Labour councillor Richard Brown, criticised this idea as a disaster waiting to happen. This is a short-term perspective. 
which ignores the need to deal with ongoing financial issues and the need to invest for future financial success, he said. Councillor Brown lists, listed overspends from 11 to 8.5 million that the council had faced over the past year due to challenges from inflation and HGV driver strikes. The council has put itself in a strong position to survive the kind of financial shocks we are enduring currently, and I am not about to abandon this strategy in favour of short-term political expediency. Councillor Brown acknowledged times are tough for residents and said the plans to raise council tax by the maximum were made only after very careful thought. A Coventry hair salon owner will be celebrating 40 years in business by turning the clock back to 1983. Glenda Miller has been styling hair for decades and she couldn't be more proud of all she's achieved. Glenda, 69, says she simply loves hairdressing which motivated her to launch her own business in the 1980s. She taught at Coventry Technical College for a spell but decided to pursue her dream of opening Blondie's Hair Salon in Stoke. Glenda said she'd be marking her 40th year anniversary by making collages using photographs from years gone by. Images of former employees will be emblazoned on the walls of the salon on Lowther Street. Glenda said she's taken great pride in training aspiring talent over the years, some of whom now run their own successful salons in the city. She said, I've had good staff. I've had staff that have been trained and they've gone on to open salons, which is good because that's what it's all about. However, Glenda said running the business has been far from easy at times. She said, it's been up and down. We've been open 40 years and lots has happened, such as road closures, COVID and people being made redundant. It's been an up and down spiral, really, but we're still here today. Glenda likened the current state of the country to the 1980s. She said, now it's like going back to 1983, but we've gone 40 years ahead. There are strikes, redundancies and food prices going up. The whole situation is like it was then. Glenda thanked all of her clients for their support over the years. A massive thank you for everything they've been through with me. I've been through a lot and they've been there supporting me in every way. And without them... Blondies would not be here today. One of Coventry's oldest buildings is set to open to the public for the first time after a multi-million pound restoration. The Charter House, a Carthusian monastery, was founded by King Richard in 1385 and from April the 1st, visitors can explore a brand new city centre attraction that promises three floors of immersive storytelling and a cafe bar run by celebrity sh chef Glyn Purnell. The £10 million restoration was achieved after a decade of fundraising. Ian Harabin, founder and chair of Historic Coventry Trust, said, This is a huge milestone for Historic Coventry Trust as we prepare to open Charterhouse to the public for the first time in over 630 years. It has been a long road of more than a decade since our earliest meetings with the council and local residents to save one of Coventry's most important buildings. What has been achieved with the support of so many is testament to the power of working together.
Colonel William Wiley's vision for his bequest was for the building to be a centre for arts and culture, for the benefit of all people, and we are confident that the restoration and the activities we have organised will more than honour his wishes. The Trust and community are extremely grateful to the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Historic England and our other funders, and overall to Coventry City Council for making this ambitious project possible. The Charter House has taken on many different roles throughout the years, including as a garden growing exotic plants and a private house once owned by Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. Bequeathed to the people of Coventry by its last resident, Colonel William Wiley, in 1940 as a museum and park, the building's most recent use was as part of Coventry College until 2011. Historic Coventry Trust, supported by local residents, was formed to acquire it with the aim of delivering Colonel Wiley's vision to open it up to the public. This started the long journey of fundraising and sensitive restoration. The surrounding land forming part of Charterhouse Fields that remained under Coventry City Council's control has since been reunited with the Charterhouse in trust ownership to be used as part of the Heritage Park which will be accessible to members of the public. Plans to bulldoze a corner shop, takeaway and car wash to make way for a care home in Coventry were rejected. Councillors voted against giving the Sponane scheme the green light, despite admitting that the area is a bit of a mess and could do with development. The buildings in the Knowles Mill Conservation Area on Minster Road are currently occupied by a Londis, Curry Club Takeaway and Hand Car Wash. Developers wanted to bulldoze the lot and replace them with a 26-bed residential care home with three storeys, eight staff and a roof terrace. In a statement read out at the meeting on Thursday the 23rd of February, Councillor Lloyd said losing the corner shop would be a terrible loss for the elderly, infirm or parents with small children nearby. The locality has already lost its post office, its chemist and one, or two, one of the two clubs or pubs within a walking radius, he said. But several councillors on the committee criticised the lack of off-street parking and the size of the planned care home. Asked about parking, a planning officer admitted that parking in the plans is not in accordance with council guidance. There should be 11 spaces and they should be provided on-site, the officer said. Council planning officers had recommended the plans for approval, stating it would have a positive impact upon the street scene and conservation area. They wrote, it will not result in any significant impact upon neighbourhood amenity, highway safety, ecology or infrastructure, subject to relevant conditions and contributions. But a majority of councillors on the committee voted against the scheme and for rejection on the grounds that it would be an overdevelopment and lacked enough parking. A Coventry cafe owner took the decision to close her beloved eatery as costs soared. Tina and Sam's Cafe shut for good on Saturday, February the 18th. Tina Sheehy ran her business for over two decades, but was left unable to afford the rising costs which continue to hit thousands of businesses throughout the country. 
Customers were left saddened, with many hoping the local businesswoman can find another site nearby. Gina said she had been left devastated at the closure of her eatery, which she had built from the ground up. After working at the Rose and Crown in Walsgrave, she decided to take the plunge and opened her own cafe on Holbrook Lane. Speaking to Coventry Live, Tina said, I decided to look for somewhere and could not afford to go for something expensive, so went for a cafe instead. I have built the goodwill up over the years and we have been going from strength to strength, really. Costs nearly doubled for the business owner over the past year, which meant that she was left unable to continue running her beloved eatery. She said, Well, this year has been the first year that I have ever put my prices up twice, and that is because of electricity and food costs. It is a bittersweet moment to have to close, but Tina said she has loved every moment at the cafe in Holbrooks. It was enjoyable because every day is different. No day is the same and you never know what to expect. All the characters I have met over the years have been really nice. It has been brilliant to get to know everybody and have the customer base that I have. And I thank all of my customers for all of their loyalty over the years. And I shall miss them all, she said. Coventry is set to host street parties across the city to celebrate the coronation of King Charles III. Communities are being invited to apply for a licence to hold the events. Almost 7,000 people have already signed up for the event to mark the occasion, with family, friends and local residents. Streets in Coventry will be able to select one day over the bank holiday weekend, Saturday the 6th, Sunday the 7th or Monday the 8th of May 2023, to apply for a licence and hold a street party. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Deputy Leader of Coventry City Council and Cabinet Member for Events said, We know residents of Coventry enjoyed holding their own street parties to mark the Queen's Jubilee last year, and we're delighted to offer the opportunity again to celebrate the King's coronation outdoors with family and friends. We're giving advance notice for the free applications to allow people to make plans. However, we also have the strict cut-off date to allow time for traffic management plans to be put in place so those who are holding parties can do so safely. It's a significant occasion, so we will also be hosting other events and activities across the city, which residents will soon hear more about. The closing date for Coronation Street party applications is 5pm on Thursday, April the 6th. Outlook News Thanks to Elaine uh, for putting together the, the news this week. Um, moving on, uh, we come to um, sunrise and sunset for this week. Sunrise is 6.53 a.m. and sunset 5.45. I nearly said 7.45. 5.45. Okay, I hope that's clear. <laughs> and now we're going to move on, as usual, from, uh, for uh, news from the Resource Centre. So here's Hugh. Well, hello everybody. Um, 
Not much to report just at the moment. You know, this, this, this big announcement that we're working on, we had a very good meeting about it on, on Monday with the council and various other people. So as soon as I can tell you, well, as soon as I know, I will tell you. Um, I'm hoping that we'll have an answer, a final answer by the end of this week, but signs are good for um, a bit of a bit of money from the council, which would be very nice because we've never had that before. Um now, I had a call a little bit earlier today um, from a young lady called Carly Gregory who lives in Derbyshire. She's blind um, and she has started up a campaign, a, a, a petition to uh, try and get bla- braille labels on all uh, all food and supermarket items, basically, uh, mm-hmm. to help people. Now, of course, many people who are blind or partially don't use braille, but of course there are a significant number uh, who do and it would really help, she thinks, to... Um, help people identify what's what's in each bottle because the packaging can be quite the same especially in things like tins um, she's doing quite well with her petition she's got up to over 30,000 signatures but she wants to get it before parliament uh, in which case she will need 100,000 um, signatures uh, so she's reached out and asked if we can publicise it now uh, you can uh, the best way to do it is to go uh, online so for those of you who are not online uh, I'll give you another way to do that in a minute. Uh, so you go into change.org and you look for the campaign called Braille Labels Matter. And that's all one word, Braille Labels Matter. And then uh, you click on that and it'll uh, take you through. Um, any uh, screen reader will help you do that. Um, you'll put your name in and your email address. Uh, they will send you an email saying do you really want to sign this? And then you have to confirm that email. That's how change.org works, is so that they can verify that you are a genuine person and not a bot, as they call them these days, uh, because apparently robot is too long a word. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> span of attention. It's the span of attention, exactly. So um, if you feel very strongly about that, please do uh, go on to, blind, uh, to um, change.org, find the campaign Braille Labels Matter, Sign up, and then you'll uh, get an email, and it's important that you confirm on that email. Uh, if you really want to do it, but you're struggling with getting online, um, come here and ask us to do it. You know, we'll sign you up. If you can use, if you can access email and everything, just give us a call. We'll uh, do it as if it was you. You will then get the email that you can then confirm, and that's a bit easier, perhaps. Now, talking of online things and various other uh, aspects, um, on the 4th of May, uh, we have the local elections. And uh, as usual, uh, the resource centre of the Mary Beale Room will be a polling station. Um, there is a little change that you may have come across. I think Joe mentioned this a number of weeks ago, but I thought uh, now, now that we're about a month out, uh, two months out from them, um, it might be worth reminding you, this year you need photo ID in order to be able to vote. For good or ill, um, you do now need photo ID. You can't just turn up. So, what you can use are a driving license. Actually, some of you may have old driving licenses, photo driving licenses, and you can still use those. So, you know, it doesn't have to be current. Um, a driving license issued by 
anyone in the EU or Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, the Isle of Man or any of the Channel Islands because some of you may have that, I doubt it. Um, a passport, a UK passport. Now, um, a passport... Again, doesn't have to be valid. You know, it can be an old one. It can be an out-of-date one, just as long as it's got your picture on it. Um, you can have a pass card, which is a national proof of AIDS age uh, standard scheme. Um, a blue badge, that'll do it. Uh, so a lot of you will have blue badges. Um, what else? Um, a voter authority certificate. I'll talk about those in a minute. Um, and it says here an anonymous elector's document well, I don't know what that is anyway um, but you can also use an older person's bus pass a disabled person's bus pass an Oyster 60 plus card a freedom pass a Scottish national entitlement card I doubt many of you will have those um, and, you know there's Welsh and Irish versions of those as well so uh, you will so there's quite a lot of choice there and certainly, if you're an older person, the choice is much, much greater than <laughs> if you were a younger person, a point of some controversy. Um, so, if you, but if you don't have any of those, and it's quite possible that you might not, um, what you'll need to do is apply for photo ID in order to vote. And in which case, what you'll need for that is a recent digital photo of yourself and your national insurance number. Or if, by some um, amazing stroke of misfortune, you do not have a national insurance number, um, other documents that will prove your identity, for example, a birth certificate, a bank statement, um, and utility bill. Now, the, you would have to go th uh, online to do that. Um, again, for some people, that's going to be challenging. But we will help. So... Uh, if you do not have any of those other things, if you intend to vote, you do not have any of those other things um, that would allow you to vote, and you would like to get uh, this, uh, what do they call it, uh, a voter, voter authority certificate or whatever it is, the voter ID um, card that is being issued specifically, we can help you with that. We'll take your photo, we'll do the online application with you, and all should be well. And all manner of things shall be well. But crucial to all this is remembering to have it with you. Yes, also, yes, also bring it with you. Yes, yes this is very important. This is very easy to forget. It is, it is. So, put it in your, your handbag or your man bag or... Tie or, a knot or in the corner of your hand. <laughs> exactly, all these things. So, anyway, that's the way, that's the way it's all going. Uh, so, quick uh, reminder then uh, that uh, we have the... Coronation afternoon tea on the 5th of May. Uh, we've got a good number of people signing up for that already, so if you'd like to come to that, please do let us know, and we'll sort out a bus, uh, the bus for you if you need it, so do talk about that. Um, we've got the event on the 1st of April, the charity shop going large, and we will be doing that again even larger uh, for the Ilsen Festival, which is on Monday the 1st of May. Um, Monday the 7th of May is a bank holiday for the coronation. Uh, Monday the 14th of May is not a bank holiday, and nor is Monday the 21st of May, but Monday the 30... no, 28th, whatever it is. Uh, the last Monday in May is a bank holiday. So we've got five Mondays, three bank holidays. So for those of you in Monday groups... Um, well, 
we might think we might think of something else to, to keep you occupied if we can, but uh, but uh, because you're going to be missing a lot of time, we might find some other times for you if you want that. But uh, let me know if that's something you would like. And that I think, dear friends, is it. And um, don't forget to buy your raffle ticket for the Easter egg. Oh. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you. The Learfrick Lions, lovely people, um, have long been supporters of the charity, have uh, donated a massive one kilogram's worth of chocolate Easter egg, um, as they do most years, and uh, uh, it is being raffled off. Uh, there are 102 football teams to choose from mm, and they some go of them have been chosen. and some of them have been chosen but they go right down the league so frankly if you're a Yeovil Town supporter <laughs> or Dunchurch United or whatever um, you might well <laughs> you might well be lucky um, uh, so pick a football team that has not already been picked hand over a quid and uh, shortly before Easter or as soon as the, the, the box is filled we will uh, draw the winner and make sure that you get your Easter egg by Easter, Easter. <laughs> which would be useful. I think it was it last year or the year before, um, Nash won and it was uh, it was just coming into Ramadan, poor thing, so oh. so she just had to avoid Not it really. So we okay. Thanks you. Um, we look forward to hearing your announcement. Yes. It's ready to be made. And here's Sarah with this week's sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to sport. Now, this weekend sport kicks off on a Friday, which was quite unusual, at Butts Park Stadium, when Coventry Rugby Club took on the Combined Armed Services. Gosh, what a big team that could be when you think about it. But the great thing about that match was it was part of the Get More People Involved in Rugby, and it, all tickets were free. I'd have gone if only it had been in the daylight. Never mind, Coventry ran out winners 65 points to 12. So anyone who was able to go would certainly have seen a bit of a thrilling match, if not a tight score. Now, Saturday lunchtime... Sorry I didn't warn you listeners, but I nearly lost that. It was only a chance phone call with a friend and she was saying, aren't you going to the match at lunchtime? And I said, I didn't know it was lunchtime. Anyway, Coventry City took on Sunderland at the CBS Arena. Now, although records show that we haven't actually lost to Sunderland in Coventry since 1985, when Steve Grizovich was in goal, Sunderland are higher than us, and they're one of the team that quite fancy themselves because they've had a lot of expensive transfers during the transfer window. Anyway, about halfway through the first half, Two players collided, sat on the ground having an argument about whose fault it was. And meanwhile, the ref waved play on and let them get on with it. So Jamie Allen, one of ours, promptly stepped up and scored. Half-time score, 1-0 City. However, it was obvious that the Sunderland manager, Tony Mowbray, who used to manage us, had given them a right rocket up the doobie-doos in the half-time mark. 
they came out like the proverbial bat out of hell, shooting our goalie, shooting just missing the crossbar or hitting the side post or the side netting. Fortunately, we were managed to stem. We managed to stem the tide until about halfway through injury time when they scored. However, we had already scored a second goal and it was that man, spells his name with a G, Yukarez. Final score, Coventry City 2, Sunderland 1. It must be a long way back to Sunderland in that coach when you've lost. <laughs> now, meanwhile, going down the leagues a little... Leamington, who are in the Northern Premier, which is the top one of the non-league leagues which I cover. Confused? Well, I sure am. They went right up north to Scarborough, but sadly lost. Leamington really are not doing well and are getting ominously close to the drop zone. However, Nuneaton, who play in the Southern Premier, which is a couple of leagues below the Northern Premier, yes, I'm very confused now, took on Rushton Diamonds and came out on top, winning two goals to one. But in the same league, Stratford took on Stourbridge at home and got yet another draw, one goal all. Come on, Stratford, you've got to do better or you're getting very close to the drop zone as well. Now, down in the basement leagues, in the conference as it's called, and I don't know why it's called the conference, Long Buckby entertained rugby, but rugby came away with a win. Coventry Sphinx won 5-0. They certainly know how to score those sphinxes. Racing Club Warwick beat Studley, quite a local derby there, four goals to two. And, drumroll, Coventry United beat Ainsbury Rovers seven goals to two. My gosh, they saw a lot of action at Butts Park Arena this weekend. Sadly, on Sunday, Coventry United women played in the last 16 of their women's FA Cup and lost to women's Super League side Brighton and Hove Albion at Brighton, but they lost 5-2. Now, continuing with women's sport, but over in South Africa this time, and I'm sorry to report, but the England cricket team, the women's cricket team, lost their semi-final to South Africa. Now, you may recall they've been playing in the T20 World Cup. So I sat down with all intentions of watching it, and I thought, wow, this is going to be a really exciting match. But I'm afraid it wasn't. Hey-ho. And I'm even sadder to report that in the final, South Africa lost to Australia, who are now the women's T20 world champions. Oh, well, we can't have it always. Now, in New Zealand, you may remember, the men who've upgraded their pyjamas for a test match to white flannels 
had won the first test match quite handsomely against New Zealand and so sort of expectations were quite high when they came out for the second match and the first first England's first innings certainly didn't fail to excite with them scoring around five, 450 and declaring declaration basically means you can say oh we declare we've had enough you know we, we've set enough at the moment so you come in please New Zealand so New Zealand promptly did and didn't do very well and they were all out for about 250 I'm only giving the approximate scores here so England enforced the follow-on which is whereby the one team the dominant team is leading the other team by more than 200 runs and fancies their chances at getting them all out within another 200 runs however New Zealand hadn't read the script and out they came and they promptly scored 450-odd, which set up a very tense finish. This is where the excitement comes in. But sadly, England lost by one run. Five days play, and you lose by one run. Oh. Now, the only thing that could have made that better was if it had been in England, I could actually have watched it rather than catching up on the iPad because I don't get up New Zealand time. Well, not for cricket anyway. But never mind England. One all in New Zealand. Well done. Bring on the ashes. Now, a big congratulations to Sir Andy Murray for making it into the final of the Qatari Open. Now, Andy hasn't actually won an Open, an ATP Open, for four years. Probably coming on to five now, actually. So this was quite a big thing. But sadly, he lost in the final to the Russian Megladev. But Medvedev, until quite recently, was really one of the world's leading players. So it was a very decent score. And I mean, again, Andy does it the hard way. His first match, this is only three sets, and it lasted three and a half hours. And his semi-final, he had to save five match points. Oh, come on, Andy, you'd be wonderful if only you could finish off a little bit quicker. Just think of all the energy you'd save. Anyway, moving temperatures completely from the Qatari heat to the cold of the snow. Big congratulations to Great Britain's Mia Brooks, who has become the youngest ever world champion at snowboarding. And what's even better to hear her interviewed was she's a real Brit. She's not a Brit who lives somewhere else and has just managed to get British citizenship or whatever, whatever. But she won the gold after landing, wait for it, a double grab cab 1440. Now, I have to say, I haven't a clue what a double grab cab 1440 years 
Letters to post bag, please, if anyone can explain. But I gather it's very good. And it's the first time it had ever been done in a competition. And as I said before, she's only 16. And finally, now at the weekend, there were the Indoor Athletics Championships in Birmingham, I believe. And Dina Ash-Smith reduced her British Indoor Women's 60-metre sprint record drum roll. Now, yes, it's good that anybody reduces a record, but she reduced it by the grand amount of two one-hundredths of a second. Now, Dina, given that the time is taken from when your chest drop crosses the line, how about getting some, shall we say, little padded underwear? Because I'm sure that way you'd reduce it by more than two one-hundredths. Anyway, moving on. A final note, and this is for one particular student on the IT group. Listen hard, person. Manchester United 2, Barcelona 1. Oh, yeah, I win my bet. Hey-ho. And that was your sport. Thanks, Sarah. Now, postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Welcome to you and your postbag. As Nigel said recently, to have a postbag spot where people can air their views, pass on tips or just have a chat and say hello to each other is very rare in talking newspapers. In fact, a group of people came to our studio to pick up some tips once on starting their own talking newspaper in Warwickshire. The founder, though, told me that they had made a positive decision not to have a postbag spot. So we have something special which you need to hang on to and the only way you can do that is to send messages into Postbag. Here's a great example. Bob Syme asks you what digital radio stations that you listen to and recommends one that he enjoys. I'd like to just say about the digital radio stations that Nigel asked which ones do we listen to. Well, on the dub radio, there's actually hundreds that you can listen to. I, I much prefer a commercial station called Mellow Magic. It plays the music that I like, 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, that, that's me, dog, I'm afraid. And, um, I listen to Five Live as well. Uh, if, if you've got a, a Concerto 3 Wireless for the Blind, you've got five dub radio stations that you can tune and memorise either by pressing the buttons and 5FM. So I like smooth radio as well. Anything with the sport I listen to on CWR with Clive Eakin, but I don't actually listen to CWR much at any other time of that because I listen to the news first thing in the morning and measure around 5 o'clock. But um, I don't... Uh, like 50 to 55 year old presenters acting like 15 and 13 year old people so 60s 
CWR, not for me, only the news and the sport. But everyone's different, everyone's got their own choice, but give Mellow Magic a try and let us know what you think, or let us, listeners know what stations you prefer. Take care, Bob Sign. Thank you, Bob. That's mellow magic he likes. Also, five live and smooth radio. Digital radio can be listened to on the Concerto 3 from Wireless for the Blind. Inquire for their contact at the Resource Centre. So what stations do you prefer? Let us know. Uh, Our youngest son, Graham, loves music, both listening to it and playing it. And after a spell in hospital, just after his mum Sheila died, uh, he uh, went off to York to a gig with the Christians and Belinda Carlisle. Whilst in York, he met up with singer-songwriter Henry Priestman, formerly of the Christians, whom I interviewed once. He sends you this message via Graham's video call to me on Google Duo. And live from York. And Graham had just been to a pub where there was a mark on the wall marking how high the river ooze had flooded the building. This next poem that moved Julia so much was very similar to words exchanged by Graham and myself when he was ill recently, a combination of an infection and grief over the the loss of his mum. It's called Never Too Late. My friend Jackie read a poem at the Monday Club. I wanted to write it out because it's so good, but my friend John said it was too long for me to type, so I can't. It's a very nice poem about John Stanford, but I don't know him. Anyway, he's American. The poem is by his stepson, who is writing about his stepfather's life. He tells his life story, but the bit I like most is when he is in hospital and dying. His father says, I do love you, John. I said, I love you too. You took my hand and squeezed it. Our eyes were filled with tears. The first time that we said that, it took 37 years. Isn't that lovely? The poet ends. It's never too late, never too late, never too late to say you love someone. Well, call me Soppy, my friend John does, but I think it's great. And as the poet says, it's never too late for anyone. Julia, and that's lovely Julia thank you very much, a lovely piece and it's never too late to tell someone like the computer tutor at the resource centre John England, how much he helped you, here's Bob Syme again It was nice to hear John English on the magazine last week Uh, John helped me a lot years ago many years ago, it must be about 20 years ago when I'd done uh, collate, uh, learning on the keyboard, uh, on the key, actually the typewriter type of keyboard. I didn't use a laptop because um, I found that my hands were a bit too big for a laptop. But John really helped me. As I say, many years ago when I had a guy dog called Jackson, I went to the resource centre, then we were moved to the technical college 
country kind of because for some reason I can't remember why but it's just nice that John's still helping out and nice to hear from him I hope everything goes well with you John Bob's time take care well phone up the resource centre and find out how John and his volunteers can help you with computers if you can't use the typewriter on a computer for any reason uh, uh, difficulty in using your hands perhaps uh, John or one of the volunteers will quite happily do it for you Graham Whale talks about a supermarket that he doesn't seem to think is being very helpful to its local residents. I was surprised to hear in Outlook News that Sainsbury's was going to close their Courthouse Green store. Now, I don't live anywhere near Courthouse Green, but I have my groceries delivered by Sainsbury's, and Courthouse Green, up to a couple of years ago, was the main uh, centre for deliveries in this area. My groceries now come from Canley. Uh, it changed to Canley uh, a year or two back. But uh, in view of the fact it was, it was at least the main distribution area in this area, I'm very surprised that Sainsbury's are going to close that store. Thank you, Graham, once again. I don't know where you can buy one or two of the soups Edwina recommends, but they are just the thing for keeping you warm on a cold day, and they sound very nice, which hopefully will be coming to an end soon. Here's Edwina. Hi, everybody. It's Edwina. Do you still have good taste? I have. I feel very lucky. I'm talking about keeping warm and having soups that really warm you up when you come in after being out in the cold. So if you want a quick warm-up, have a soup. I've just recently had the pleasure of beetroot soup. I couldn't believe it. But it was really nice. And then there was a cup of soup that was broccoli and sage. There are so many spices being added to our usual carrot and different vegetables. The flavour still comes through. And that little bit of spice spice to your life have a look have a go at the different tastes i've enjoyed looking for some take care bye thank you edwina and for all your messages this week as my punch and judy grandfather and uncle used to say that's the way to do it tell us your memories on outlook or on the amateur radio airwaves of the late, much-loved Gail Taylor, who sadly died recently. Thank you for your messages of condolence, including one from Julia, the Resource Centre, Tina, the Retinitis Pigmentose Society, the Reader Service for the Blind, the National Federation of the Blind, Outlook, and anyone whose lives Sheila touched with her compassion. Thank you very much, and bye for now. 
This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks, Dave, with your weekly postbag. And no doubt he's looking forward, hoping for your messages and comments on this week's programme. It's ever so easy. Just pick up the phone, dial 02476 717 522, press option 5 for the talking newspaper, and then just start talking. Don't worry, Christine can easily remove any mistakes. Go on, have a go. Margaret takes us this week to Tamworth Hall on the Radford Road. Said to have been built on the site of a medieval farmhouse, Camden Hall is the last surviving large Georgian hall outside the city centre. It was built around 1800 and its owner in 1821 was John Hopkin. He died without issue. Thomas Isherwood was the owner into the 1860s. The building was for sale in 1883 and described as standing in well-laid-out lawns, pleasure grounds and shrubberies planted with trees and shrubs of mature growth and about 52 acres of superior park-like lands studded with fine elm, oak and other trees and divided into convenient enclosures of permanent iron fencing and bounded by belts of plantation. The stabling and offices are ample and include stalls for five horses, four loose boxes, carriage house and other suitable offices and cottage for a coachman groom. There is also another prettily situated cottage residence with garden and spinney let to Mr F. W. King Hall and nearly all the lands were late in the occupation of Mr J. R. Wynne. The cottage was Camden Hall Farm. Wynne was a stud breeder of shire horses and rare breed cattle. In 1891, Richard Alexander Rotherham of the watchmaking family is given as the owner and in 1896, Colonel Richard Caldicott was occupying the hall. A childless widower, he died the same year. Rotherham himself was in residence after the Colonel's death. From 1898 to 1945, it was the home of Edgar Turrell, a magistrate with connections to the cycle and textile industry. All of the owners of the hall continued its tradition of keeping cattle, Herefords, White Parks and Longhorns. After Turrell's death, the hall passed through many hands, becoming the Old Hall Hotel in 1947. Then in the late 1960s, it was a beefeater house before its many reincarnations as a pub and eating house. Between various tenancies, the hall was wrecked and set fire to by vandals until 2011 when Howell Associates put forward a new plan to turn the building into a hotel and spa. 
As his legendary Brighton cop returns to tackle fraud, counterfeiting and murder, author Peter James reveals the inspiration behind his new thriller, read by Bill. Despite being a best-selling crime writer with a successful TV series starring John Sim, a new stage play touring in February, and homes in Brighton and Jersey, Peter James loves nothing more than rootling around at car boot sales with his wife Lara. It's true, he smiles, we've always been keen car booters. Everyone hopes they might find that amazing bargain that turns out to be worth a fortune. We're no different. But in a sense, he has, as they say, spun trash into treasure. Inspired by his real-life bargain hunting, Peter's latest Roy Grace novel, Picture You Dead, begins with a sale discovery, a missing work by the French old master, Jean Honneur Fréjournard, and the tale, like its 17 predecessors, is pure gold. Having planned to write about a hospital serial killer, he turned to the less gruesome topic of art fraud during Covid. The fans, who include the Queen Consort, of whom more later, need not worry. The NHS killer is likely to appear sooner or later. Over coffee before his appearance at London's Capital Crime Festival this autumn, he tells me the roots of his latest book go back to 1996, and the moment a Brighton man called David Henty with court forging UK passports. Head of HM Passport Office apparently later said these were the best forgeries he'd ever seen, barring one problem. Two spelling mistakes, smiles Peter. If it's got people binding, printing and dispatching them, when suddenly his error comes to light. He spelled Britannic Majesty wrong and his front door is kicked in by five of Brighton's finest. Handing a five-year jail sentence, Henty learnt to paint in prison, and discovered an incredible talent for forgery. On his release, he realised if he signed his paintings himself, they became works in the style of the artist, rather than forgeries. Peter continues, in 2015... I co-wrote a non-fiction book with former Brighton Police Commander Graham Bartlett called Death Comes Knocking, Roy Crace's Brighton. Graham rang me saying, it's this art forger I nicked and he's invited us to lunch. So we rock up at David's house and there's a blue plaque on the wall that says David Henty, world's number one art forger. I've met many criminals over the years, and David's the nicest by a million miles. When I pointed out his blue plaque and said, I thought you only got one after you're dead, he laughed. Yes, I forged it, he said. Anyway, we had a lovely lunch, and I got to know him. Later, he was having an exhibition of his forgeries, and he asked me to open it. He gave me an L.S. Lowry to thank me. I put it on our wall at home. About a month later we had a dinner party. 
One of the guests was some former Sotheby's director, Jim Wanacott, from Bargain Hunt and Antiques Roadshow. He said, that's a lovely Lowry. I asked, do you think it's original? He looked at it for two minutes and said, I don't have enough time right now. I'm not seeing anything to tell me it's not. And that's what gave me the idea for my book. When I admitted it was a fake, Jim said it was the best forgery he'd ever seen. So I went back to David and asked if he could forge something Frajanad, I've always loved, but even the world's foremost expert couldn't tell it was a fake. Basically, he said yes. Henty's tricks include using antique canvases, scrubs clean, and daubs in lead-white paint, creating authentic surface cracking, known as crackleure, and placing in front of a wooden burning stove for a fortnight and recreating a suitably aged-looking patina, and leaving his work for two months in the home of a heavy-smoking friend. Using these techniques, he painted a missing Ajanar for Peter, which they named Spring, one of the four fictitious canvases showing four seasons. Thus was Picture You Dead, and its tale of Harry and Freya Kipling find treasure at a car boot horn. Unfortunately, the discovery places them in the crosshairs of a ruthless collector. For his part, David Henty becomes forger, Daniel Hegarty. It's the 18th Roy Grace novel, and another bestseller already, which begs the question, how does he keep his series so fresh? When I was a kid, a lot of my favourite writers Callister MacLean, the more successful they got, the fatter their books got, and the less exciting. I made a vow, if ever I was lucky enough to have any kind of success, I'd try to raise the bar with every book. Everyone who reads is intelligent. We like to learn things about some aspects of the world, so I find a subject that fascinates me and research the heck out of it. One of his discoveries was that major London auction houses believe 80% of the art they are offered is forged. Museums, stately homes and other collections are also likely to harbour fakes hung among their collections. One of David Henty's friends is a wonderful character called Billy the Brush Mumford, says Peter. Years ago, he sold a fake for £15,000. A year later, his painting was in a major auction in Dubai, with a reserve of £1.5 and it all came tumbling down. He told me he used to go round country houses before CCTV, take pictures of the paintings, copy them, and then swap them. Giving a Helping Hand, a short story written by Cynthia Townsend, and read by Ali. Having a touring caravan was great. It meant as a family we could just pack up and go off and have no one else to please but ourselves. My mum didn't really see it as much of a holiday because she still ended up doing the washing and the cooking when we didn't go out to eat and she'd end up making sandwiches for the days we were on day trips. 
When we weren't going on our annual holiday, we would often have the odd weekend away. My dad was a member of the Caravan Club, a national organisation that had access to campsites all over the country, and you could book and go. If you were a member, you could also volunteer to be the marshal for the weekend. It was mainly an admin role with a level of responsibility. You were in charge of making sure everyone had a plot to put their van and access to water and electricity. The other job, and some would see it as the most important but not very nice, was digging a hole that the chemical toilets could be emptied into. And at the end of the weekend, it was the marshal's responsibility to fill it in after everyone had gone. One weekend we went to Lytham St Anne's in Lancashire, not too far from Blackpool. The site was really nice, and because the Blackpool illuminations were on, it was a handy spot to go and see them. We got to the site around about seven o'clock on the Friday night, so that my dad could make sure everything was ready and the plots were allocated before the rest of the vans arrived early Saturday morning. Some of the members who wanted a two-night stay also came on the Friday. It was a really nice atmosphere, as all the people who were there genuinely loved being caravan owners and liked the fact that they could go to different places once or twice a month, some even went four times a month. Dad had also organised a trip to see the illuminations for everyone that wanted to go, and had hired a coach to take us to see it, so that no one had to worry about driving. All the children in the party automatically made their way to the top deck and sat at the back where they could be rowdy. Being on the top was where most people sat, as you had a better view of the lights. It was always a treat to go to Blackpool. Mum and Dad had their honeymoon there in 1955. It was the place to go if you were from the Midlands. I loved Blackpool because it was bright and brash and fun. There was always lots to do, and all the piers had amusement arcades where we'd spend all our coppers that we'd saved up in a jar so that we could play on the grabber machines or on the one-armed bandits. Before the days of the talent show that graced our television screens most weekends and beyond, these were more likely to be found gracing the seaside towns of the UK. In Blackpool, at the Central Pier, there was one contest in particular that drew the audience travelling from the Potteries to the Golden Mile, Peter Webster's Pier Talent Show. Known affectionately by many as Uncle Peter, the man behind the crowd-pleasing show gave children of all ages the opportunity to showcase their abilities in front of a live audience. I was desperate to be on Uncle Peter's show. I didn't know many songs, so singing was out of the question, but I did play the recorder and decided to do a song on that. I recall standing waiting to go on stage with my little knees knocking and feeling very sick, but once I was on there, I was okay. The audience were kind and happy to see a seven-year-old girl clutching her black and white recorder. Uncle Peter asked me my name and where I was from, and I got a big clap from the section of the audience who were from my hometown. And what are you going to play for us today, he said. Five foot two, eyes of blue. I think the actual title of the song was Has Anybody Seen My Girl? 
but I didn't know it as that. Uncle Peter had a little three-piece band that accompanied the acts. They were seasoned professionals, so knew most of the songs, and as soon as I started to play, they joined in, and the audience were clapping along, and Uncle Peter was too. When I finished, I got a great reception, and eventually came second to a little lad from Glasgow who sang I Love a Lassie. He won a little cup, and I won a teddy bear. But no one left the competition empty-handed, because everyone was given a stick of Blackpool Rock. The weekend was so much fun, and in my opinion, ended far too quickly, and it was soon time to pack up and go. One of the last things Dad had to do was to fill the trench in that everybody had emptied their chemical toilets into. He started filling it in with a pile of soil that he'd originally dug out. It was a difficult job and not very nice, but it had to be done. My little brother, who was only five, wanted to help his dad with filling it in, and so he found a stone boulder, the biggest one he could carry, and threw it into the pit of poo. It hit the liquid goo with such force that a storm of it erupted up and shot into the air and came back down again, all over me dad. I'd never seen a little lad run off so fast in the opposite direction. You could tell that my dad was gunning for him. My brother ran to find my mum and hid behind her, who did her level best to contain her laughter, while at the same time calmed my dad down and told him he was only trying to help. She made my dad take off his soiled clothing and place them in a black plastic sack, and then he had to drive home in his vest and pants all the way back. It's a story that over time got more exaggerated, and the size of the boulder grew and grew, and so did the cloud of liquid gunk that emerged from the pit to cover my dad. Looking back, it was one of the funniest things that happened on our many trips away. On the way back, I just cuddled the teddy I won at the talent contest. I called him Peter, and the first thing I did when I got home was to place him on my bed, pride of place. The first thing my mum did was to put Dad's clothes in the wash while he had a shower, and my little brother kept out of his way. All this trouble, and all because he was giving a helping hand. The perfect pancakes to keep the family happy. Writes Diana Hart, read by Nigel. I'd forgotten that uh, Shrove Tuesday was coming up, and I almost missed out on pancakes until I came across this article in the Waitrose Weekend magazine. You're probably going to make crepe on pancake day. The thin ones you sprinkle with caster sugar and squeeze lemon over. It's the most basic. When my children were young, I kept a recipe for these and one for American pancakes, thick and fluffy, blue tacked the inside of the kitchen cupboard. There were frequent sleepovers, and one of their highlights was breakfast. I juggled two pounds, producing pancakes in a steady stream until all the gathered boys were full. It was a long time before that happened. You need a lot of pancakes when you're eight years old. Both crepes and American pancakes are the meal that still spreads happiness in this house. The world of pancakes is huge. There's an obvious thing to make reasonably cheap. Uh, a batter uses just basic ingredients and simple. I've added quite a few of my own core repertoire over the year. Eastern European ones made with curd cheese, try to get swartag if you can, 
uh, are creamy underneath their golden crust. Served with a fruit compote, I like plums for them, they make a wonderful weekend breakfast. A soft set jam used sparingly is good too. Uh, bon Maman and Intense works very well. Pancakes made with ricotta in the batter are also soft and brilliant for using up ricotta. I think the idea was imported from Australia, where they have made brunch into an art. Ricotta hot cakes made with blackberries in the batter, fried and drizzled with honey, are as good a breakfast as I can think of. Scottish pancakes, also called drop scones, were the first I ate. My granny would make them as a treat and top them with sugar and lemon, just like the French ones, but you normally have them with butter and jam. They're slightly spongy, or maybe that was just my granny's pancakes, and a good thing to make on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Bretons have galette made with buckwheat flour. They have a deep flavour compared with sweet French crepe. Earthy, robust, even slightly bosky. I usually make savoury ones, as they do in Brittany, though they're great with apples, the slices sauté until they, caramel, they caramelise at the edges. Savoury ones can be filled with mushrooms and roquefort, ham and cheese, smoked salmon with creme fraiche, and salty dots of keta caviar. They are usually folded over on each side, so the pancakes end up in a square with the filling poking out in the middle. There are many savoury pancakes. Korean ones are made to make if you have kimchi. Sliced kimchi is added to the butter. Fry it and with a dripping sauce you have lunch. Japanese ones, though there are different types of pancakes there too, are made with salad onions, prawns or pork in the batter and a drip, dipping sauce on the side. Then there are the Vietnamese ones. These contain a world of flavours. They're packed with prawns, pork and crispy vegetables, but you also, in a way, make the pancakes because they're served with an array of herbs. It's an unusual pancake as it's not made with eggs but with rice flour and coconut milk. Pancake batter, made with varying degrees of flour and sometimes a raising agent, can carry so many ingredients. If you have eggs, flour and milk, you can make breakfast, or lunch, or a sweet treat at 4pm. It's smart to keep these ingredients on hand, especially if you have small boys to feed. Sarah talks to David Olcock about the blind football team which he plays in and helps to organise. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Sarah from Sport, but with an unusual or rather a different kind of sport today. And I'm delighted to be here talking to David Orcock. So, David, I know what you're here for, but can you tell me how you first got into football? With, with the football itself, I've, I've always played it since school. Um, but with as I've got older... Um, various mental health conditions and now I've lost my sight I, I joined with Sky Blues in the community uh, with their mentor mental health project and that basically involved playing football getting some extra therapy some co- sort of techniques for coping with the various problems that I've, I've got myself um, and when I found that I'd lost my sight in October of last year uh, they put me in touch with another club in Coventry 
that are looking to set up a blind and visually impaired football team for people over 18 to basically just come and have a bit of fun for an hour or two get together with like similar people and and just have fun right so i think this is what you're here today to talk to all of our listeners who may be sitting there thinking oh i used to play football when i was at school but but well listeners there is no reason now why you can't so how would you say playing sport makes you feel it helps both physically and mentally um the physical side when I first got back into football with, with with the mental health project, I was 27 stone. I'm now 22, um, and f- physically my health has got a lot better. From a mental perspective, it's the social aspect of yes. being with other people. Yeah. Um, I didn't go out of my house for six years before I got involved with the project, and. Being able to just go somewhere now where everybody who attends wants to be there. I've always said it's important for anything that you're there of your own accord. That the the DWP haven't sent you or your doctor hasn't sent you. You're there because you want to meet people. And even, I mean, the first time I went to a session, it was two hours long and I never said a word. And at the next session I attended and they couldn't shut me up. You know, it, it's just how people interact with others. And, and you, you make friends, you know, people that you would never think to meet. Right, so tell me a bit more about blind football. If you have a team, how many players do you have? At most, I think, believe it's seven, it's seven aside. Um, the the pitches where we're hoping to set the, the team up, uh, they can hold up to sixteen, so eight aside. Um, but we would like at least five aside, so t- to ten people. Um, right. But um, if people decide they just want to come at the last minute, not a problem. We we'll rotate the substitutions. You will you will always play. You'll never just stand on the sidelines. And do the players have specific? Positions. I assume you have somebody in goal. Yeah, the goalkeeper can be sighted. Um, I, before I lost my sight, was a goalkeeper. Um, I tried to carry on with that after I'd lost it. Not a good idea. Um, <laughs> you, you, can, you, can, you can feel it coming, but it's only yeah. a bit too late. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's that's the only position that can be sighted there are other outfield players and they they try and balance it out so it it doesn't matter what stage whether you've got some sight no sight a lot more sight than others the actual professionals because there are professional teams out there not many Mm -hmm. um they will adapt they will either blindfold the outfield players or wear darker glasses right to make everything equal so any of our listeners, come on, you know, we're trying to get you enthusiastic here. Now, I have to ask this because listeners know my passion for equality. Yeah. Are you looking for women as well as men? Everybody welcome. There Absolutely you are. Absolutely everybody. It, it's, the team itself is called FC Equalise and mm-hmm. it is what it says on the tin. It's equality for everybody. 
everyone who's there have either had various mental health issues or changes in their lives where they've turned left rather than gone right so to speak and they've got back on track and we want to bring everybody in and there's there's no cut off at all now i believe you're looking to play at the at center which i know is in belgrade yeah how would I get to there if I didn't drive and I hadn't got a driver or didn't want a taxi? Yeah, you've got, it's on the, the main 21 route to Wood End. Mm-hmm. That's your main uh, travel Coventry so bus. So you get on it to Wood End? Yeah, and just as, as you go past the Gallagher Retail Park bus stop, there's an island, it's the next stop over. Right. Now you do have to cross the roads, but there are Pelican Crossings. The other route that you could take is the is Coventry's Ring and Ride service. Um, that has now merged with West Midlands On Demand. So rather than having to pre-book your bus in advance if you decided you want to come, there is an app that you can download or you can phone them and they'll send a bus out to you if you're able, if they're able to send one. And wouldn't it be great, listeners, if we had a whole team bus? We, we would it. love to get it to that stage. Um, we do run a, a standard team on a Friday night, and there's always up to 20 people that come. The, the, the will is there to make this actually really, really work. We're at the minute looking to get as much, as many people interested as possible, because it makes life a lot easier when we go to get funding applications. The centre itself is more than happy to put it on for free. There's no charge, and there will not be any charge for any player that comes with us. We don't want to do that. We want free football sessions. And I assume, well, I know that it will be wheelchair, sorry, not wheelchair, guide dog. Absolutely. You know, guide dog's yeah. welcome. Yes. So what yeah. more? Absolutely. What more Everything's wide path as well, so if you do need assistance walking, there's plenty of room to go between the pitches. We'll always help you. Is it indoor or outdoor? It's outdoor. Um, There are about 12 pitches, I believe, on the site. Mm -hmm. They're all individually gated off. And once you go in, massive pitch to play on, plenty of space, so you're not going to feel crowded. Um, The equipment itself will be provided. It's literally just bring yourself and a, and a pair of the, the rubber studs because it is astroturf so it's just the rubber studded boots or trainers to see how you feel so astroturf means that it's all weather doesn't it, it? is yeah. yeah yes so there'll be no risk of flooding unless we get a deluge no um, hopefully <laughs> hopefully we won't see Nor's art going yeah, back we don't want that one because i don't think aqua football's quite there yet but um it's we want it to be inclusive of of everyone no matter what your site level and even if you want to come and have a go and you're you feel well i've got a a little bit of a site problem but just come along we're we're more than welcoming to everyone that's it for another week we'll be back next week so it's goodbye from me peter walters